Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Filene Fill-In. I'm Holly Fearing with Filene. The Filene Fill-In is the podcast where we fill you in on what's been going on here at Filene's home base and out and about in the financial services world. Today, I'm joined by Filene's Managing Director of Research, Taylor Nelms, as we interview Andrew Turner, Legal Research and Writing Faculty at the University of Wisconsin Law School and author of Who Do Credit Unions Belong To? The Promise and Peril of Being Undefined in a Time of Political and Social Polarization. Since Andrew is here in Madison, we were fortunate to have him join us in person in our podcast studio for a lively conversation. Before we jump in, a request for your feedback. We hope you are enjoying hearing directly from our research authors so they can explain the essential findings from their point of view. We're going to add a series of mini-episodes between these bigger report deep dives where we bring in an academic or expert in their field to explore topics and issues important for credit union leaders to keep up on. These won't always be tied to a Filene report, but will allow us to be even more timely with our topics here. Let us know your thoughts on this plan. And if you want the next level experience connecting with our research, I recommend attending one of our research events this year. Each is hosted by our academic fellows from renowned universities across the country. Our next event is called The Future of Trust, How Technology Will Make It or Break It for Your Credit Union, on May 29th and 30th in Seattle. This event will give your credit union an edge when you learn strategies for using data to grow member trust, not lose it. Be sure your marketing, technology, and operations leaders are there. You can also catch us in Boston on August 13th and 14th and Austin on September 26th and 27th. And of course, you'll want to join us at this year's Big Bright Minds in Durham on November 19th and 20th. Now to explore our new research on how credit unions are navigating these socially and politically polarized times. Okay, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. We are here with you in the studio. We're fortunate to be joined all live for this recording. And we're here to talk about your publication around who do credit unions belong to. I wanted to quickly read a little bit of the intro from this study to set the stage for what we're going to talk about today. The study examines how credit unions are viewed by average Americans at a time when seemingly everything carries emotional, heated social or political baggage. After all, credit unions are mission-driven organizations. Credit unions speak of the credit union movement rather than credit union industry. In this incredibly polarized time, credit unions hold themselves out as something unique and different, financial institutions with a point of view, an ethical perspective, and a mission to achieve. This seems like a recipe for getting caught up in the fury of today's politics, but that's not happening. The results of this study were clear. Everyone likes credit unions. So that sounds like really good news for credit unions. Andrew, can you start off by answering the question maybe of who do credit unions belong to? And by way of explaining that, kind of explaining a little bit about the research that you did to get that answer and why this was a topic that you even felt like needed to be researched. Well, first, thanks for having me today. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the research. I guess I'll start by talking about, I guess, what motivated me or what interested me in the research. Um, So I've been interested in credit unions for a long time, done credit union research in the past, so I'm always kind of thinking about credit union issues and what's going on. And uh, I think all of us are very aware that we live in a very polarized time, politically, socially, it's just kind of in the air. And I realized when I was thinking about credit unions in my own community that I had an unstated assumption about the politics of credit unions. Uh, I had never really thought about it before, but I realized that I had an idea of what I kind of thought, again, the politics of credit unions were. 
And I wondered, is that an accurate reflection of you know what credit unions say about themselves, how they talk about themselves? Do they send that message? Is that something that I got from looking at credit unions or something that I brought from my own bias? And you know, do other people from other, you know, personal political standpoints view credit unions differently? You know, one of the things that we see is that there are so many areas that politics gets involved in, or I should say, where people are influenced by their political views, um, where they shop, what, what they watch on TV. You know, there are statistics talking about, I think it was like 58% of people have chosen not to buy something from somewhere because of the politics of the place that's selling it. So if credit unions are viewed by people as aligning more with one political philosophy, or if people believe that they do, then that seems like that would be really important for credit unions to know. So that was kind of the starting point for why I became interested in the topic. And what do you feel like, if you had to say in a nutshell, who do credit unions belong to? Now, after doing the research, which is not necessarily what I expected, I would say uh, they belong to people of all political persuasions but they definitely fit more with people who are engaged, active people in their community, which on the one hand sounds great because, you know, who doesn't want to have an engaged, active uh, base of consumers and users, but it was a little uh, concerning to see the people who are not active and engaged do not seem to be engaged with the credit union movement. So that was the point of concern and not what I expected to see. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're going to get into that a little bit more in a minute here. But first, I want to hear from... Taylor Nelms, our Senior Director of Research here at Filene, around why this research was a good fit with Filene's work and through the topics that we cover in our Center for Consumer Decision Making, um, how this felt like a good fit and how credit unions might be able to use this report to help them with their goals around growth or preparation for the future um, and having meaningful impacts on their communities. Right. Thanks, Holly. And thanks, Andrew, for joining us. So I think the first thing that intrigued me about this study is that no one's really ever tried to understand how credit union membership breaks down in terms of political affiliation. So minimally, I think that the study gives us a strong baseline understanding of how politics shapes perceptions of credit unions. And as Andrew mentioned, we know that politics can play a pretty dramatic role in all sorts of decisions that people make from where they live to where they shop. Um, like Andrew said, even what kinds of media they they consume. So does that extend to credit unions was the basic question underlying the study. And I think as Andrew has shown us, the answer is no, not in the ways we would have expected, but maybe yes, in a way that we would not have expected. The dividing line isn't necessarily political ideology, whether you're on the right or the left, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, but actually just simply how engaged you are in the political process, how included you are in the political process. And I think that there are some warning signs potentially for credit unions, but also where there's risk, there's always opportunity. So I think that there are some areas where credit unions can indeed um, grow as a result of this study. So, you know, I think it's clear that while division and, and inequality is nothing new in the United States, um, political polarization and partisan animosity are really driving public conversation in new ways today. And so credit unions need simply to pay attention to, you know, where mutual antipathy can arise and the ways that it might shape their relationships with their members. And I think that the study shows us that credit unions need to make some strategic choices about who they're serving right now and where they might grow their membership in the future. And if anything, 
you know, whether you design your marketing to appeal to those on the left or the right, I don't know. But I think generally, I think the study shows us the importance of being really strategic around your membership, around the kinds of products and services that you offer and the delivery channels um, through which you reach your members. And would you say that the results of this study were surprising to you? Or was there something in particular that you felt that was the most surprising or the most important element that was discovered through the course of this research? I'll mention two, maybe they're sub-findings, small findings that I found really surprising personally, and then um, hand it off to Andrew to maybe talk sort of more broadly about some of the big takeaways. But, you know, for me, you know, it's striking the degree to which the disengaged or the unincluded or the marginalized are perhaps the most critical area of growth for credit unions. And, you know, that's not a market segment that is readily available, right, through whatever market research firm you're using or if you're doing your own market research in your credit union. You know, typically you don't get um, segments broken out by political engagement. Mm -hmm. But maybe it's really important and you may already be serving the disengaged and they may not be happy with the ways that they're being served by you. So you know, what can you do about it to, to reach that segment? Um, that is a significant segment of the American population, um, but a segment that, uh, as shown in this study, are not particularly happy with credit unions and not particularly happy with any financial institution, it turns out, but credit unions are not immune to that. So that's the first bit of sort of surprising finding. The second was that, you know, credit union membership, maybe this isn't surprising, but I'm glad to have it validated. Credit union membership on the whole is fairly representative of the U.S. population when it comes to political affiliation or, or political leaning. And even more dramatic than that, and this is the surprising piece, whether you consider yourself a Republican or a Democrat, when you're presented with some pretty generic credit union values, you see those as your values. Right? So you identify them as Republican values if you identify as a Republican, and you identify them as Democratic values if you identify yourself as a Democrat. And I think that's really surprising and maybe shows us an area where credit unions might offer something unique in the financial services landscape. Andrew, did you find that to be similar in your experience with doing the research? Yeah, I agree. Those were some of the same things I found surprising because when I started, again, my kind of starting point was to have you know, to kind of check my own bias about whether my thoughts were reflected in what other people were seeing in credit unions. And so when I set up the research, I was really focused mostly on right versus left, Republican versus Democrat. And one of the things I tried to do was figure out how I could ask the question in a way that really got at the underlying issue. And so I didn't ask, are you a Republican? Or are you a Democrat? Because I'll just take myself as a personal example. I don't identify myself as part of a political party. But if you look at my voting behavior, I vote for the same party every single time the last 20 years. So, I, you know, I, I did things like saying, instead of asking, are you a Democrat or Republican, I said, well, you know, which party do you usually vote for? And as a subset of that question, I also added in, I don't often vote or I never vote, something along those lines. And so, well, what I found surprising was when I started to break down the data and look at the results, you know, how much do you like credit unions? And I looked at Republicans and Democrats and it was about the same. And, you know, where do you bank? I looked at you know, Republicans and Democrats, just about the same. And it was kind of underwhelming. I mean, it's still an interesting result to see that there wasn't maybe the partisanship that I expected, but it it wasn't maybe the really, you know, exciting, you know, kind of thing you hope to see in the data. And then just kind of perchance, I said, well, I wonder what happens if I look at it in terms of people who vote, for people who don't vote. And it just, boom, it pops right out. Suddenly you see all these differences. And then there were other ways of getting at it. So one of the things I wanted to see originally was 
you know, to try to get a sense of how strongly you feel about things, I added a, a question about, do you think the country is going in a very bad direction, a somewhat worse direction, the same, or a much better direction, um, just to get a sense of how strongly people felt. So I could kind of pick out strong Republicans, right? So people who said, for instance, I, you know, I'm a Republican, I always vote Republican, I think the country's going in a much worse direction or a much better direction. Um, again, with the intention of seeing the difference between, say, strong liberals and strong conservatives. And what I found was, if you don't cut by party, but instead say people who feel strongly versus people who don't feel strongly, that's the real dividing point. People who felt very strongly that the country's going in a good direction were almost identical people who feel very strongly that the country's going in the opposite direction. As long as you felt strongly, you kind of like credit unions. The more you move towards kind of apathy, like, eh, it's kind of all the same, nothing changes, I don't usually vote. I'm not that engaged, then suddenly interest in credit unions drops right off. And that was a very unexpected to me. Uh, and to mirror what Taylor said, I think the, the other interesting thing to me I found fascinating was, you know, most people, when I gave a set of, just again, kind of generic credit union values. So for instance, um, you know, we value people over profits or, um, you know, nonprofit financial institutions are a good thing. I don't remember exactly the specific phrasing, but that type of credit union value most people did not associate that with being, you know, liberal or conservative. But among those who did, as Taylor said, people always saw it as being their values. Republicans said, oh, yeah, uh, that's a Republican value, and Democrats the opposite. And that was really surprising to me, um, that they, they did buy into those values but saw them as their values. One thing that you guys have said, and, and also the survey findings pointed out, that no one seems to dislike credit unions and that people of different stripes use credit unions um, equally. So there's got to be an opportunity there for the credit union industry. Um, do you feel like there's, you know, as we know, the, the credit unions do not have the majority of market share in the financial services um, industry. So do you feel like there's an opportunity to be had for credit unions there that they're just not capitalizing on yet? Well, I, I certainly think there is an opportunity, uh, but it, it may be a little more complicated than that simple finding shows. It's one thing to say everyone is happy with you, but are they happy enough to change their behaviors? Are they happy enough to get excited about what you're doing? And so there's something to be said, and, and I probably get this a bit later when we talk about potential you know, outcomes or directions uh, credit unions might take, but you know, being maybe blandly inoffensive to broad swaths of the population doesn't necessarily get people excited about being involved with you, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so... Uh, yeah, I, I would just jump in and just say, you know, I think that there's as much risk there as opportunity. In this survey, we found that no one actively dislikes credit unions, but there are very few people who are you know, die-hard credit union aficionados, right? Like people who really feel explicitly committed, right? There are many, many people who don't necessarily differentiate them from banks, or if they do, they find them fine, but they're not um, they're not big supporters. Again, no one actively dislikes credit unions in this particular sample, and I think that we see that in the market share, and we see that in a lot of the broad perceptions and marketing in the system, but I think that there's a risk there that folks are not necessarily being set on fire by credit unions <laughs> the way that, as Andrew put it, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's the idea that creating passion in people, um, sometimes, and again, we'll, we'll, we'll maybe talk about this a little bit more later, sometimes doing things that inspire passion among the people that you want to touch may also cause a negative reaction to other people, and that's sometimes a risk. 
But the countervailing risk is, again, not being interesting enough or provocative enough for anyone. And so then you kind of fall into that, that apathy. I mean, I look at myself, um, I'm a credit union member, also a bank member, and I have an old banking relationship that is, you know, probably 20 years old. And one of the reasons I haven't moved everything over the credit union is just because of inertia. I uh, just, there's an inertia there. And so, you know, it's really hard to get people geared up to make the kinds of decisions consumer, you know, starting a bank account or moving an account or any of those things if you don't inspire passion in people. Yeah, and credit unions always want to be the primary financial institution for each of their members. But it's clear that for many members, they're banking all over the place, right? And their financial lives are complicated. They bank with banks, they bank with credit unions, maybe they also bank with fringe financial services providers, whether they're payday lenders or check cashers. Maybe they're banking in their mattress. Maybe they're banking with family members. Maybe they're banking with fintech apps, right? Their financial services are really disaggregated at this point in time across a whole bunch of different providers and different technologies and different interfaces. And so for credit unions to gain market share is one thing, but to inspire passion is another. And I think that there's still a lot of work to be done on, on both fronts. Mm -hmm. And amongst those that are feeling socially and politically disengaged, credit unions are losing traction with that group. They're not alone. It sounds like kind of all financial institutions are not hitting the mark with that group. But I found it very interesting that the report kind of pointed to those that feel like it doesn't matter where I bank at all, then they kind of default or the tie goes to the bank instead of the credit union. What is meant by that? The idea that the tie goes to the bank, I think, just goes to the broader concept that there are a lot of people in the community who don't really understand credit unions. Almost everyone understands what a bank is. That's just kind of something that everybody has the base of, of knowledge. But when you look at people across the general population, uh, understanding of credit unions is much lower than we might like it to be. You're only up a little over 50% of people who really understand what a credit union is. And as, as a note here, I didn't ask people, do you know what a credit union is? I gave them a list of options describing different financial institutions and said, which one of these is a credit union? And we got about 50-some-odd percent who recognized that among people with post-secondary education. People with less than post-secondary education, it dropped way off. It got much, much lower. And what I think is concerning about that is, um, on the one hand, you might think, oh, well, of course, people who have you know more education know more about the world. They're going to have more knowledge about different things. But... Do you really need a post-secondary education to understand what a credit union is? That You should need that. You know, People don't have a post-secondary education to recognize what a bank is. So that's really, to me, hinting at something deeper than just the knowledge-based education. It's hinting at, again, how engaged you are and what that says about what you understand. So kind of circling back uh, to your original question, if people don't really know what credit unions are, and the less engaged they are, the less they know, they're much more likely to default to a bank. But I think, to me, even more concerning than the kind of the tie goes to the bank thing is that when we asked which is the better place for an average middle class family to do their financial services with, and you had banks uh, and credit unions pretty similar, um, and credit unions being slightly ahead, and then at somewhat a similar level, people saying it doesn't really matter. So those all three, you know, within a reasonable margin were pretty similar. But as soon as you drop off to the disengaged, what really happens isn't so much the difference between banks and credit unions as you get a huge uh, increase in the it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And that's what I find concerning. That it, Again, what you kind of see across all these statistics is this kind of general sense of 
I don't care. I don't, you know, the country, better or worse, I don't know. doesn't really matter. Do you vote? No, I don't usually vote. Where do you bank? doesn't matter. You know, that's that kind of that general overall disengagement, disinterest. And that, I think, is a real concern. And among that same group, if you ask, are credit unions a positive influence your community? Again, Republicans, Democrats, very similar. People who vote sometimes, it starts to drop off. And then once you say, I rarely vote, it drops way off even more. So again, it's that generalized sense of disinterest flows right across everything. And I think it's not necessarily an indictment of credit unions as much as as it is just a general sense of none of this matters. I don't really care. Mm -hmm. And I think as a credit union movement, those are the kinds of people that I would like to think that we're reaching or would like to reach. And the fact that we're not, I think, is concerning. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting point, because those are the people that are being left behind in a lot of different ways, socially and politically and culturally. And it seems like credit unions are the ones that are there to serve that group. And and yet they're still, like other financial institutions, not hitting the mark in speaking to them. In fact, um, one of the points in the report talks about how the group that was segmented as rarely vote was much more likely to say that credit unions had a negative or very negative impact on the community than any other segment. But yet not a single one of those respondents articulated a coherent reason why they felt this way. I thought that was really interesting. And I wondered if you could explain like what maybe is behind them feeling that credit unions have that negative impact without being able to articulate why, if that's just an emotional um, feeling there. And Taylor, maybe you can talk a little bit about what you think credit unions could do with that information to better serve that segment that that financial institutions are are leaving behind? Well, first, let me point out that the number of people, the absolute number who said that credit unions have a negative impact was still very, very low. There were very few people across the board that had a negative impression of credit unions. But of the very few that did, the vast majority were that disengaged group. And I think the fact that they couldn't articulate why, I don't know for sure, but my guess is it's a reflection of their general view about society. I think if you would ask them, you know, how do you feel about the Whig Party? They'd say, negative, I don't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that general, that, that sense of, of kind of rejection, frustration, that would be my guess. And so I don't necessarily think it was a rejection of credit unions, would be my, again, with that, that lack of any reason. I think it's more just that generalized disengagement, negativity. That's what I would interpret. I think something that gets lost in a lot of the talk about polarization or division in the United States at this particular moment is that one of the biggest kind of collective affects, right, that people really struggle with is not, you know, we, we talk a lot about sort of passionate disagreement, antipathy, you know, anger, hostility. We don't often talk about exhaustion or, you know, Feel, just feeling tired with it all. And I think for a lot of people, young, old, no matter where they are kind of in their lives or where they live, I think that that is something that a lot of people struggle with. And so when it comes to doing, you know, the boring financial chores, and it's not just financial chores, right? But, you know, when it comes to credit unions, it's it's those boring, difficult financial chores. It's hard sometimes to get people motivated to do them. So credit unions talk a lot about seamless member experience. They talk a lot about the need to, you know, make onboarding or, you know, uh, using services as easy as possible, right, to lower member effort. 
you know, there's a broader point to be made there. It's not just about let's make it easy for our members. It's who among your membership struggles to find the time to do the little things. And there's a lot of people, right, who struggle to find the time to do the little things. And so credit unions, I think, have an opportunity not to just simply reduce member effort in order to um, get that next transaction, but to actually get people involved in the financial system to begin with. One other thing that's important to me when you're thinking about people who are disengaged or less connected to the system is that for those of us who think about credit union issues, who work in the credit union movement, who do research, it's something that's very present for us. And so we have feelings about it. Um, but it's really important to try to put yourself, in my view, in the perspective of someone who doesn't feel that way. So for those of us, myself, I'm very interested in politics. I listen to a political podcast pretty much every day. Uh, so for me, I have very strong opinions about how I feel about you know, our current president or who I would vote for or wouldn't vote for the next election. I know what I feel, and I find it stunning when people two days before the election say I'm undecided. I'm like, how can you be undecided? I mean, this, the choice is still clear. I mean, and so I can, while I disagree with someone on the opposite side, in a certain way, we're on the same page that we think it's important. So even if we differ in our views, we, we have that shared engagement. And I think both of us look at the person who doesn't know yet, and, and we both feel like, how could you possibly not have an opinion on this? Yet, there are huge percentages of people who go right up to election day undecided. Um, and I think that's just a reflection that those of us who are engaged in a topic find it hard to remember and to put ourselves in the perspective of someone who isn't thinking about it on a day-to-day -day basis, who isn't interested in a day-to-day -day basis. And so the decision about who to vote for or where to bank or how I feel about financial services may come up not once a day or once a week, once a year, you know, is when they think about it. And so it, it's, I think it's really important to get in the mindset of someone who doesn't think about these things the way that we might think about them. Yeah, and when you look at, you know, check cashers and payday lenders, all the research suggests that's where they excel, mm -hmm. right? It, it's super easy to walk into a check casher. There, it's a no judgment zone, so on and so on. And, you know, for folks who don't want to have to think about it, who don't want to have to necessarily make the decision, right? That's the option for them, I think, more often than not. So the affiliation is more around not what you believe in, but how you believe or how intensely you do your research and your financial chores. Like you were just saying, Taylor, that those that want to be involved in it are going to be paying attention to political issues, social issues, choices around where they shop and where they bank. Those that want to avoid those maybe are the ones that are saying, I just want the easiest path. I want to not make a decision, maybe go to a payday lender, maybe have somebody take care of that for me. Um, do you also feel that there's a trust issue happening around financial institutions, just officially or formal, formal institutions versus other kinds of money lending or opportunities for banking? Yeah, I mean, this is just a personal perception, but I, I think what you see a lot in that disengaged group is more broadly it's a lack of faith or trust in institutions generally. People just feeling like, um, what's the point? You know, like again, back to the finding of it doesn't matter where I bank. And I think there's a lot of people who, um, again, one of the reasons why people might be undecided, I think back to my mom having a discussion with one of her coworkers and, and challenging her, why, how can you not know who to vote for? And her reaction was like, it doesn't matter. Like, who cares? It's all gonna be the same anyway. It doesn't matter what side I vote for. My life is going to be the same tomorrow. There's no difference. Um, and I think that that's that sense of and it, maybe apathy is almost uh, maybe a derogatory way to think about it because it suggests that that person 
you know, I would say they're, they're failing in some way, but it kind of puts a negative cast on their experience. Where I think a lot of people, that lack of engagement or that apathy stems from a sense of lack of control, the inability to make any difference, the feeling like you can't trust anyone. And so if a person through their personal experience feels like, you know, things just don't work out and it doesn't really matter where I go and it doesn't matter who I vote for, it's all the same anyway, it's, I think, oftentimes a reflection of frustration. What's all saying a cynic is a, is a disappointed optimist. Um, and so people, I think, sometimes become cynical because of their negative experiences generally, not necessarily with financial institutions, although that could be the case. But if you start to lose faith in the system writ large, that's going to carry across to many different things. And I think credit unions are just one uh, reflection of that. Yeah, and if you think about the ways that credit unions have historically tried to differentiate themselves in a way that would appeal to people who may otherwise feel like there's no real difference, right, between financial uh, choice between financial institutions, they do it around rates, right? And we know it's true that credit unions provide great member benefits, you know, lower rates on loans and higher rates on deposits. But, you know, especially in a low interest rate environment, maybe that matters less to people. And, you know, maybe they really truly don't see a big difference between credit unions and banks. Another way is through the service relationship, right? Um, but as things migrate online into sort of mobile and digital environments, again, you know, maybe there actually isn't such a huge difference between the kind of service that you would get at a credit union and that you would get at a bank, at, at least in a self-service you know, digital or mobile environment. So what are credit unions going to do about that? How are you going to compete in an environment where the opportunity for differentiation becomes slimmer and slimmer? And I think that's the challenge that this report really shows. And another major component of this research entailed doing a credit union website review to kind of assess how credit unions themselves are presenting their messages and to see if they message differently in different geographic or social or political contexts. Andrew, can you explain what you discovered through that work? Yeah, and let me start just by saying, kind of much like the other part of the research, I started with one idea and came out with a conclusion that was completely distinct from what I thought I would find. And so I was curious to see, again, based on this idea that I anticipated that people might have different views about credit unions based on their political affiliation, I asked myself, you know, if you are looking at credit unions in a very conservative area versus those in a very liberal area, would they describe themselves differently? Would they, because a lot of the credit union um, uh, mission really is adaptable to different areas and different people. It doesn't necessarily have a political affiliation, but you certainly could give it a cast or a view or a way of describing it or an approach that maybe resonated more with your community. So I expected to see that. And so I picked out seven different states um, some that are kind of more purple, so to speak, some that are more red, some that are more blue, and, and tried to look at the differences. And I started by hoping to pick out five or ten different credit unions in each state and kind of pick out differences. And when I did that, I wasn't seeing anything. And so I thought, well, let's just go all in. And I looked at every credit union website I could find in every single state. I looked at almost 400 credit union websites. And the takeaway is there's no difference. They're all very generic. Uh, no, I wouldn't say all. The vast majority are very generic. And what I tried to look at was, started by are there differences between them? And then when I didn't see that at all, I started to ask myself, if I was a person in the public who didn't necessarily have a real clear understanding of what credit unions are, is there anything on that website that would indicate to me that this is different than a private bank? And the result was the vast majority of credit union websites I think we're, other than the name, we're indistinguishable from a bank website. Um, very few had a, any clear statement or any clear differentiator. 
um, especially on the front page. Sometimes, uh, or more frequently, when you dug deeper, you would find the difference. Even there, I think it was up 30 plus percent. I couldn't find anything anywhere on the website that distinguished them from a private bank. And of the others that did, the vast majority of those had it hidden uh, in an About Us page or somewhere deeper in the website where most people probably would never get there. So again, I thought it was very surprising, um, just the lack of clear messaging. Um, you know, as Taylor pointed out, it's, it's harder and harder to differentiate yourself. I think I would flop a little bit by saying it's very hard to differentiate yourself on things like rate, on things like services, on, on those types of things. And if that's the axis upon which you're trying to differentiate yourself, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it becomes more and more difficult, which then if you look at the other ways one might differentiate oneself and you don't see anything there, then that kind of gets you into that zone of, well, what makes us special? Like, What's going to get people excited about us? What's going to make us special? Um, and again, from my standpoint, I just didn't see that coming through uh, on the websites at all. Yeah, I, I hate to say that in my experience doing social media and digital marketing for credit unions, that that doesn't surprise me at all, actually. I mean, I, I would have had that hypothesis before you started, although I don't feel personally like that's the best way for credit unions to position themselves. Um, so what do you feel like that's, is there a fear factor going into that where credit unions are unwilling to commit to kind of differentiating themselves to a certain demographic or what what do you believe is leading to this kind of lack of um, significant difference from from another credit union or any other bank out there well I'll, I'll give you my perspective um, I'm also very curious to hear what Taylor has to say I think there's a couple things going on I think one is that the part of it is, is historic in my view uh, you know, credit unions perhaps 10, 15, 20 years ago were in a different position, right? And so the way that they had to compete or differentiate themselves was maybe much different. And so talking about differentiating on the basis of rate or trying to compete with banks and show they could do what banks can do, I think was a much more important thing. As we've moved forward and credit unions have consolidated, become larger, become uh, more technically uh, able to compete with, with banks, I think there has been, you know, again, a long-standing push to be able to compete with banks in those areas, well, in a large extent, that's, I think, been achieved. But I don't know that credit unions have been clear about kind of what comes next. Uh, what's, you know, once you've accomplished that, what's the, the thing that you can now look at? But I do think tied to that is absolutely fear. I think uh, most people in business are fearful. I, we use the example in the study of uh, Nike, right? Uh, there were a few things that were as, you know, uh, kind of a litmus test in our society as the Colin Kaepernick NFL kneeling before the anthem thing. And everyone had an opinion. Everyone got exacerbated about it. And Nike went out and said, we were with Colin Kaepernick. And they put out an ad about it. And, of course, it causes tons of people to burn their Nike shoes and protest and, you know, swear they'd never buy Nikes again. Well, Nike wasn't doing that uh, because, you know, that's their political view necessarily. They're doing it as a marketing ploy. And it worked. Because in the time immediately after that, their sales went way up because they recognized that it was absolutely okay to anger people if it also meant a corresponding, you know, showing to a group, we're with you, we believe in your values, your values are our values. And so, uh, but I don't know that many organizations would have done that. You know, I, don't, I don't know many uh, organizations that would have come out and said that. Um, so I do think there's a fear uh, and a fear that by saying or doing the wrong thing, you're going to anger people. And again, I'm not a marketing expert, but I would say that 
part of the price of creating love among some people is recognize that that's going to sometimes cause anger among others. But I think there's a fear of doing that, and I think that's reflected in, in websites. Yeah, the lesson here for me is you can't be all things to all members, right? Um, and by necessity. So it's better to approach that not with fear, but with knowledge about who are your members or who is your target membership, who are your, you know, who's your target market. Nike certainly knew who their consumers were, who their customers were, right, when they took a stand. You know, it no doubt aligns with the values of their leadership and principles, but as Andrew pointed out, it was a very savvy business decision at the same time. And so obviously credit unions should not be making decisions about marketing in the dark. They should do it, you know, with knowledge and with research about who their members are actually and who they want their members to be. But that doesn't mean that they can't take a stand um, about something as basic as the credit union difference, right? I don't think that there's any evidence to suggest, and I'll talk a little bit actually um, about this in just a second, but there's really no evidence to suggest that credit unions are going to be harmed by wearing the credit union difference on their sleeve or displaying it on their websites, right? So we took the classifications that Andrew did on the credit union websites, this uh, basic categorization of credit unions that displayed the credit union difference very clearly, those that did not, and then ran that against some very basic kinds of financial performance statistics. And what we found was, and it's a rough um, comparison, but what we found was that those that uh, wear the credit union difference on their sleeve, those that really do announce the difference in some way, it doesn't have, you know, there's there's no judgment about exactly how they did it, right? Just that they it was present on their website. Those credit unions outperformed across a wide variety of metrics those that did not announce their difference as a credit union per se. That's pretty dramatic in my mind. And, you know, again, it's a rough um, statistical correlation, but um, it's pretty clear that at the very minimum, you know, telling people that you're a credit union and that a credit union is different than other financial institutions for X, Y, Z reasons doesn't hurt your performance, right, at the very minimum. And in fact, it may, in the current environment, suggest something about the way that you run your operations such that you are able to deliver um, greater member benefits or that you are able to grow um, at a faster rate, both of which um, we saw among those credit unions that did differentiate themselves on their website. You know, historically, I think that credit unions haven't had to make strategic marketing decisions because their fields of membership before the kind of deregulation of field of membership and the widening of credit union charters, the marketing and membership was kind of built in, right? You knew ahead of time who your members were gonna be. They were gonna be the employees at this particular uh, company, right? They were gonna be the folks who work at this particular military base, right? And so on and so on. And so as credit unions, and this is, you know, historically speaking, a fairly recent phenomenon, even though, you know, it's several decades in the making, credit unions um, in this new environment in which they have much wider fields of membership, hypothetical fields of membership, potential fields of membership, and overlapping fields of membership with other credit unions, you know, they have to make strategic choices about, okay, we have a really big potential membership, who is going to be our actual membership? And I think a lot of the work that we're doing here at Filene, including Andrew's study, really touches on the importance of aligning your operating model and your offerings as well as your marketing with your membership and their, you know, however you want to segment that membership. Yeah, and I think that 
data around the financial performance of credit unions that are um, a little bit more polarized in their messaging on their websites, that's going to be very valuable as an asset for credit unions to take a look at. So we will have a document on our website along with the report that's going to be available for credit unions to download, take a look at that, and um, use that to help them shape kind of some of the decisions that they're going to take and um, some of the conclusions that we'll get to in a moment here. First, I wanted to talk about the media review that was done in this research as well, though. So, Andrew, you also conducted an assessment around how different um, leaning media, conservative or li- liberal media sources in, in a couple different states um, portrayed the concept of credit unions. What did you discover in that effort? I think the same kind of thing that we've been talking about before, which is an unfortunate lack of uh, focus on credit unions. So I looked at, again, the original idea was to look at the difference between conservative versus liberal uh, uh, sources. And so I started by looking first at some well-known conservative and liberal media sources. Uh, so Mother Jones, for instance, on the, on the liberal side, Fox News on the more right side, picked out, uh, I think it was six different publications and, and looked back uh, more than a decade and just tried to pick out where they talked about credit unions. And what I found was that the vast majority of times that the phrase credit unions came up, it was in the context of banks and credit unions. So when banks and credit unions do X, Y, Z, when banks and credit unions do the other, that was the phrase. It was very rarely just about credit unions. Um, And when they did come up uh, specifically about credit unions, the few times that there was uh, kind of a clear judgment or discussion about credit unions, it was, there was no distinction. Uh, you could find positive or negative mentions in, in conservative media or positive negative mentions in liberal media. It made no particular difference. I then looked at newspapers that were in the cities or main newspapers in cities that are ranked as among the most conservative or most liberal communities in the country. So, and I specifically looked at communities that were somewhat on their own. So you could find, for instance, I think it was Mesa, Arizona, very close to Phoenix. That was very conservative, but not necessarily the, the area. Uh, and so I tried to find cities that were that the whole area was considered to be pretty conservative or liberal picked out newspapers from those locations and did the same thing looked back the last 10 15 years when credit unions are mentioned and once again what you found almost always were uh, articles talking about banks and credit unions or something that was very mundane you know the credit union has a new ceo or credit union opens a new branch just things that didn't have a lot of um, meat to it and when you did this was interesting Almost always, when you did find an article, you tended to find three or four or five or six in that same publication, and then I noticed they were always by the same author. Mm -hmm. And what that really pointed to to me was, it really makes a difference if you have uh, a champion in the media, someone who's interested in credit unions, who knows credit unions, who cares about credit unions, that is gonna make way more difference than political leaning or other factors. And so I think one of the strategies credit unions might think about is really working on getting that connection with a member of the media or someone who they can bring into the organization, really get them engaged and involved and understand what credit unions are all about. That makes a huge difference for at least what I could see in the, in the media review. Yeah, and there's a lot of emphasis in the credit union system on the trade press, and I think that that's fantastic. There's such a robust kind of conversation and set of um, you know, venues for trade news. But I think that there's work to be done for credit unions and for the credit union system and its advocates to reach out to the popular press um, to, yeah, build those kinds of media champions. I feel like there's always opportunities when um, 
financial topics are at large in the media when um, government shutdown and people are struggling and um, different regulations are being voted on in Congress, that's the time it feels like that credit unions can stand up and say, we have these certain opportunities and here's why. And then maybe more people will be listening. And it's a great time to point out what's different about credit unions. Okay, so I want to give us some time to talk about the conclusions because you built some really powerful conclusions in this report after kind of taking into consideration how credit unions are currently being perceived, how they themselves are positioning themselves, and how they're being portrayed by media. So would you assess the current state of all of those three as a good thing, bad thing, neutral for credit unions? And then what were some of those conclusions, those strategic paths, if you will, that that credit unions might want to consider um, in their marketplaces? So it's hard to know for sure, but my subjective feeling is that things are fine, but that's a little bit dangerous. Uh, I don't see any Again, from my perspective, immediate problem. People like credit unions, people are engaged with credit unions. There's no particular you know, problem. But I think that does present some risks, and it presents risks in a couple of ways. One risk is just, uh, again, that idea that it's one thing to be generally liked. It's another thing for people to be engaged and excited enough about what you do to seek you out and to want to do business with you, and I think that's a problem. I also think there's a potential risk there if organizations don't, clearly define themselves, they can be defined by outsiders. Um, so maybe not the credit union movement generally, but I can even imagine on a local level. You know, if a credit union isn't perceived as having a clear identity, it doesn't take a whole lot for, you know, an incident, uh, a political campaign, something that occurs locally to get branded a certain way, for people to start to perceive you in a certain way. And so, again, if you're not self-identifying, I think there's always a risk that others can put an identity on you. But I think even more than that, just the general sense of if credit unions don't have a clear identity, or at least a clear perceived identity, other than our rates are lower um, or we're nicer, that's a kind of a dangerous place to be in my view. And Taylor, what do you feel about the strategic paths that credit unions could embark on based off of um, the recommendations of this report? Yeah, I would just reiterate what Andrew has said and what I've said earlier is that I think it's more important to make a choice than mm-hmm. um, than which choice you make, right? Mm-hmm. I think it has to fit with your strategy. It has to make sense for your membership. But generally speaking, it's important to at least have in front of you the strategic options that are available to you. So whether you decide to stick with the status quo, whether you decide to go the route of Nike and um, embrace your people, whoever they are, right? Or whether you decide to, um, what was the third option, Andrew? Uh, bridging. Bridge. Oh, yeah, right, of course. And w- or whether you decide to, you know, really sort of double down on some of the values that um, many, many people in the United States share. I think that those are all good options for individual institutions. What's more important is that you are clear-sighted about making the choice between them. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm not in the position where I should be making recommendations to credit about what they should specifically do. But to echo what Taylor just said, thinking about your options and really thinking about the pros and cons, I think is important. There are organizations and the report talks about some examples. You know, some organizations have been extremely successful just kind of saying, hey, we're doing a real great job competing on our services and the way we do business. 
we don't need to make a big show about the credit union difference. Uh, not that organizations don't talk about it, but that's not necessarily the thing that is gaining them traction in the market. But I think the other options are worth thinking about and thinking about whether or not they make more sense to you. So, you know, one thing I want to be clear about is that we've talked a lot about politics, and I think it's easy to kind of think that when we talk about differentiating yourself, we're talking about taking a political position. And I don't necessarily mean that. You could do that. But I think it's more about taking on an identity, being clear about who you are. And so I don't think necessarily, although one could do this, it's about taking a position on political issues of the day or things like that. It's more about defining clearly who you are and defining yourself clearly enough that other people can see you and say, that's that's my thing. Like, that's what I believe in. That's what I like. And even at the risk of, you know, frustrating some people, if we look at two of the most successful politicians in the United States right now, uh, President Trump, you know, people have strong opinions about him, but he became president and he did it to a large extent by saying, I really don't care if people don't like what I have to say. This is who I am. This is my identity. On a completely different way of looking at it or a different side of the spectrum, Miss um, Ocasio-Cortez is also a person right now who is objectively shouldn't be as popular as she is. She's a, you know, a freshman member of Congress, yet she has a very clearly defined identity. She knows who she is. She angers tons of people, yet she also excites tons of people. And so, again, it's that ability to be something that people can identify with. And by being that thing, people who identify with that way of thinking or feeling or being are going to be attracted to that. And so I think credit unions, you know, again, not necessarily in the political venue, but can say, this is what we are. This is what we believe in. It could be all kinds of things uh, at any end of the political spectrum, uh, social issues, um, you know, all kinds of things, whatever it is. It could be embracing technology in a unique way whatever that is, but something that makes people say, oh, that's my place, that's where I want to be, that excites me. And then again, the last one is just that recognition, like we said, that when people see values, credit union values, no matter what their political stripe is, they think that's their values. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the underreported things, and we have a couple of statistics like this in the study, uh, one of the underreported or underappreciated aspects of society right now is as strongly divided as we are, it's striking sometimes the extent to which we're not as divided as we think we are. There's a huge number of people, people who vote differently than me. Are they seriously misguided or just think differently than I do? You know, the vast majority kind of revert to this more, no, it's okay, they just think a little differently than I do, which is not what I expected. I expected people to be much more exercised about it. And so I think that there is an underappreciated number of core values that most people share, and credit unions are uniquely positioned to talk about that. There's not a lot of institutions that can do that, that can talk about shared values and do it credibly. When the bank talks about shared values, it comes off as a marketing ploy because frankly it is. I mean, they're a for-profit business and no matter what they say or do, fundamentally that's what their mission is. A credit union can credibly talk about values in a different kind of way. And I think if they are a little more values forward, there's lots of ways that they could use that in a beneficial way, not just as in organizational growth, but actually benefit the community. Yeah, and not to sort of draw a false equivalence, but I do think that there is the opportunity for credit unions to identify some of the shared commitments and values that may not otherwise be recognized as shared commitments and values. I think a lot of the research on polarization in the United States shows that it's driven by social sorting or you know, affective forms of polarization and affiliation, and not necessarily by core underlying issues, right? Like maybe the name of an issue might 
drive people apart. But when you get down into some root causes, uh, when you get down into some of the really fundamental you know, problems or opportunities that are, um, that are you know, sort of inherent in the United States in the contemporary moment, there's a lot of agreement about what those are. And they have to do with things like, you know, equality of opportunity. They have a lot to do with like, locality and community. And I think that, you know, credit unions have the opportunity to build on some of those values, which, amazingly enough, are right there at the core of the credit union mission already and have been kind of since the inception of the system. So I think that there's a lot of true opportunity for credit unions to serve as a as a kind of bridge, as Andrew puts it in the report, or or at least a, a unifier in their local memberships and markets, if not for the United States as a whole, that might that might be asking too much. Yeah, well, I've, <laughs> I've even seen fascinating statistics about, you know, when you ask people what they think, and I don't know the exact statistic, but if you ask people what they think the proper distribution of wealth is in America, you know, what percentage of the top 10% or top 20%, uh, and you take wild, you know, extreme right and wild extreme left, and they agree. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't tell them what you're doing, just say, what do you think the correct proportion is? They all, I mean, not identical, but pretty close. Um, and so they perceive themselves as being wildly different. Yet when you actually, you know, dig down to how you think society ought to look, you sometimes are very surprised that, that there's a lot more, um, you know, unity in terms of vision um, than we think there is. And again, I think credit unions can play an interesting role in really bringing forth and talking about and celebrating in a very mission-forward kind of way, in a way that helps the organization by saying, this is what we stand for. And being able to stand for things in a forceful, straightforward way, in a way that other organizations can't do credibly. Yeah, and they're able to do that in part because they haven't been polarized in the United States, right? Like they remain in some sense kind of above or below the fray to this point. And so there are opportunities for individual institutions to certainly take a political stand or another kind of stand, as Andrew said, to appeal to a very specific market. And maybe that's an option for some credit unions in particular places or with particular memberships. But I think the broader opportunity here is for credit unions as a whole to think about the ways that they might surface some shared values without doing it in a divisive way or an explicitly divisive way. Yeah, I hope that this research will get credit unions or anyone listening to this podcast will will be inspired by this research to just kind of take a step back and look at who they are as an organization and what that means to the community they serve and who that community that they want to serve is and, and what defines that community and then have the confidence with this research kind of backing it up to go out there and say, okay, we're not going to be focused on or afraid of those that we are maybe um, pushing away, but we're going to be enthusiastic about those that we're drawing in by being stronger voiced to exactly their needs. And I think that's probably the way to approach it from a marketing perspective and um, constantly assessing if that's a benefit or, or not. But there's like this report, points out there's kind of three paths to take. And so um, everyone could find one that feels right for them from from this report. So Taylor, what, what can credit unions do next with this information if they want to learn more or stay connected to more research like this in this COE, in the Center of Excellence, or any of the other research that's coming out soon? Great. So, you know, first of all, I think it's important to point out that, you know, as members of Filene, listeners have our archive at their disposal. 
And so there's a almost, I think almost 500 reports at this point um, that go back 30 years. So there's a wealth of information. Um, and we're here to help curate your pathway through that pretty in-depth archive. So um, we stand at the ready to, you know, answer questions, you know, solve your unsolved mysteries. But I think, generally speaking, in terms of thinking what's coming next, Andrew's report really sets the stage for a whole line of research that we have set up that's all about developing and refining strategies for growth by looking to your existing members and thinking about what are your new market opportunities? What are your new opportunities to serve different communities? I think a critical starting point, and Andrew's point sort of teased this up really nicely, is to ask yourself, you know, who are you already serving that you may not recognize, right? What are the populations and segments that exist in your current membership that you haven't identified explicitly and you haven't started to try to market to or build a product or service um, around? Can you build specificity into your offerings, right, for those membership segments that you may not have identified explicitly. So we have a case study on using market research to reach your current versus hypothetical membership that's going to be on its way out soon, and a whole series of reports that's going to look at the current and future state of member experience and looking in particular at how credit unions can compete on service. I would say another line of research around you know future reports coming out from Filene has to do with navigating an uncertain future. And I think a lot of the setup in Andrew's report really points to the fact that a lot of people feel uncertain about the current state of the country or the current state of their region, and they aren't entirely sure how to navigate that uncertainty. And there are good tips and tricks <laughs> to help leaders and others to, you know, again, navigate some of that uncertainty. And so, you know, a lot of the research here at Filene is oriented to the future of the credit union system, to the future of credit unions. And then, you know, I'll put in a final plug at the very end to come join us in person at any one of our events. Again, free and open to members. Andrew was just at one of our research events in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, we have a whole series of research events coming up um, throughout the calendar year, uh, May 29th and 30th in Seattle on technology and trust, August 13th and 14th in Boston on aligning the insides and outsides of your organization, your operations with your strategy, September 26th and 27th in Austin around consumer decision-making and talent, and then November 19th and 20th in Durham, North Carolina for our big um, member meeting, Big Bright Minds. And so I think there are a lot of opportunities to come and, and play with us, come engage with us directly, learn directly from the experts like Andrew, the research that they're doing on behalf of the credit union system and with Filene. Wonderful. I'm looking forward to all of that. So um, that's going to be an exciting year for Filene. Anything else that we didn't cover today or did we get it all? No, nope, I think that's a pretty good discussion about the core findings. So Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Andrew and Taylor, for lending your insights today. And um, I'm I'm hoping that this will be another star episode of the Filene Fill-In Podcast. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Holly. All right. That's it for the Fill-In, folks. Thanks again for listening. This episode of the podcast is endorsed by our research team to give Filene members and listeners an opportunity to dive deeper into our latest report on who do credit unions belong to, the promise and peril of being undefined in a time of political and social polarization. I want to once again thank Andrew and Taylor for sharing their insights with us. It's been clarifying to hear their points of view on the results of this research. If you like this episode, please do rate us on Apple Podcasts so more people can find us. 
and make sure you're subscribed to the Filene Fill-In Podcast so you can keep up with what's going on at Filene. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch about today's show, email me at hollyf at filene.org or find us on Twitter at Filene Research. Until next time, thanks everyone. (laughs) 